Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Welcome to Loopold's Hunt Talk Radio. Hey folks, Randy Nuberg here with another episode of Leopold's Hunt Talk Radio. I hope you're all doing well. Hope you had a Merry Christmas. Uh, Today, I have a couple guys from Washington State who are on the podcast, and I've been following this issue for over a year. Um, Things have changed in Washington in such a dramatic way. And some of you might say, well, I don't hunt there, I don't fish there. Well... There's a huge story that provides lessons to all of us that has unfolded in Washington. If you think that your state, either through its appointment process of of our public trustees, through the legislative process, who some of those are our appointed or elected trustees, or through the judicial process. If you think that you and your state and your opportunities as you have them today are just completely protected, well, these guys from Washington, Chris Hager and Dan Wilson, are going to tell us a story about what's happened there. And I think when you hear it, you're going to realize your your, uh, comfort that your state is, is free and clear may not be what we all want it to be. And I know I can say that personally for my state of Montana. I probably get a little bit too comforted, maybe take for granted, maybe lackadaisical about the risks that some of our seasons, some of our hunts, some of our other types of activities that we have could be at risk. So, I wanted to have Chris and Dan on here to talk about the the Washington story in hopes that all of you would listen to it and think about it in the context of your home state, wherever you live. Because these are the kind of things that are going on out there and the groups that I I suspect these guys aren't going to use the term anti-hunter or anti-hunting to define who these groups are that push this stuff. I'm going to use that. That's that's what I'm telling you. They don't like hunting. They don't like the North American model. They don't like the fact that hunters... Well, they like the fact that hunters and anglers pay for most of our wildlife management, but they don't like the fact that that, in turn, gives us a pretty you know, strong voice. Uh, 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 maybe more seats at the table than they that well they'd like us to have zero seats at the table but anyhow the example of what happened in washington is kind of the the game plan that is often being considered even in states with huge hunting and fishing participation like my home state of montana or wyoming or idaho these groups are trying to accomplish these same things so thanks for being here uh want to make sure we recognize all these great sponsors who make this podcast possible loophole optics 
Uh, go to Leupold.com, check out all their great stuff, and know that Leupold is there supporting hunting, conservation, access, shooting, Second Amendment, all the things that are important to what we do. And the same can be said for Nosler. Nosler is another family-held business in Bend, Oregon, who's put their shoulders to the wheel to support all the things essential to uh, uh, the activities we love. I mean, it just without all the things that, that these companies support, that we as people, uh, as hunters support, None of this happens. So go to Nosler.com, check out all their great ammunition and components and, and bullets, and uh, hopefully you'll, you'll keep those companies in mind. Uh, Mystery Ranch Backpacks. Uh, Mystery Ranch has been supporting us for a long, long time. Uh, they make great products. If you want to get uh, 10% off your Mystery Ranch pack, you can go to the GoHunt.com gear shop. And put a Mystery Ranch pack in your cart. And if you check out with promo code Randy, they'll give you 10% off. And most other regularly priced items will also be discounted by 10% if you put them in your cart and you check out using promo code Randy. And we have Outdoor Class. Uh, Outdoor Class is an educational platform that I'm a part of, uh, me and a lot of my friends, Corey Jacobson, Remy Warren, Hank Shaw, Jamie Teagan, John Barclow, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, If you go to OutdoorClass.com, sign up using promo code Randy, you're going to get 20% off. And now you also get Corey Jacobson's University of Elk Hunting course as part of that subscription. So you get two great informational platforms for the price of one subscription. Uh, our own proprietary platform, our own subscription platform, platform FreshTracks.tv, if you go there, you'll get all of our content. You'll get most of it. You'll get all of it earlier than, than our, uh, anywhere else. Uh, some of it will be exclusive. And you'll get it ad-free on a super high-quality viewing experience. So... FreshTracks.tv will get you our FreshTracks Plus subscription. And it is application season, so you've been hearing these bonus podcasts we've been doing about applying and trends and changes and things that are happening. All things needed for that come from GoHunt. Uh, I always say that GoHunt provides me what I need for application season. Through all the draw odds, all the research strategy articles, they give me everything I need for research season, which are all these e-scouting tools as part of their mapping suite. And then they give me what I need for hunting season. Between their gear shop, where you earn points, and then their mobile maps or desktop maps, everything I need. So go to gohan.com if you sign up for Insider, use promo code Randy, and they'll put $50 of credit in their gear shop for you. So... Appreciate y'all being here, and uh, when I hit the button uh, from Washington, we're going to get to talk to Chris Hager and Dan Wilson, two guys who are very involved in what's going on there, and I think they got some good advice and some good insight for the rest of us who live in other states, and uh, again, my word of caution, don't think this can't happen in your state, so thanks for being here. Well, folks, I told you we were going to have a discussion today about 
something that's really interesting. Uh, some might say disturbing. Some might use other descriptions. But uh, with me today are Chris Hager and Dan Wilson. Uh, they're very involved in what's going on in Washington. If you're in the hunting and fishing community, the wildlife conservation community, and you haven't been paying attention, by the time this podcast is over, I'm pretty sure your eyes and ears are going to be opened to what's happened in Washington in the last year or two. And uh, hopefully you guys, Chris and Dan, uh, are going to give us some ideas of what you're doing to straighten the ship or whatever term you want to put to it. But uh, anyhow, uh, appreciate you guys being here. Chris, Dan, if you'd each tell the audience a little bit about your background, who you are, and why you're involved in Washington wildlife politics. Oh, I hate saying Oh, I said wildlife and politics in the same sentence, but that's what I'm going to stick with today. So anyhow, Chris, let the, let the world know what you're up to and what what's your background in this. Yeah, no, thanks, Randy. Um, well, one, appreciate you having us on. Um, like you're saying, I'm Chris Hager, I'm the Northwest Coordinator for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Um, so I work uh, with Dan on a weekly, sometimes daily basis, especially when it comes to uh, WDFW, Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, um, and hunting policy uh, in, in this state. Um, so yeah, I'm located in Vancouver, Washington at, the, at this current point in time. And um, yeah, I'll have Dan introduce himself too. Well, thanks, Randy. My name's Dan Wilson. I'm a Washington chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Angler. I'm the co-chair. Uh live on the eastern side of the state in Spokane, Washington. And uh, I, I don't think when I started up with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, I would have ever ended up in a place where I was talking about wildlife politics, as you put it. But it's uh, become a pretty... Uh, overarching issue for us to deal with in Washington lately that's needing to be on the front line and stand up for sound policy and good management. And that's, uh, you know, seeing a vacuum there, we kind of jumped in feet first and we've been swimming as hard as we can ever since for a couple of years now. Well, I, I've followed your, your whole thing that started, I think it was in late 2021 when out of nowhere, even though your department recommended a spring bear hunt, either the quotas didn't get approved or the season didn't get approved or something. But I'm, I'm hoping that you guys can kind of start with some background about why this is such a cautionary tale to anyone in the country who has a wildlife commission that is appointed by political elected officials uh, and, and lay out some foundation and some background for where this conversation is going to go as we talk about some of these things. Sure. The, uh, the story's pretty long and I, we've been at it for two years now is about right, just around two years. Um, but there's a lot of context in that background over those two years. And it even goes back a little further than that. And, you know, I think that when we're talking to people within the hunting community, that understanding some of those details is really important. So if it ever sounds like I'm getting really down into the weeds <laughs> on this, it, it, unfortunately it is necessary to get all the way through the story. Um, the best way to, to kind of frame this at a really high level is that we, we have 
our hunting seasons here in Washington. And, and those are relatively set, relatively uniform, and they exist underneath our game management plan that is administered and set up by our wildlife commission, uh, usually on a five-year, seven-year basis. But within each year, the commission votes to approve uh, maybe the season dates exactly or the tag allocations if there's special draw the exact number of tags, and maybe which units are going to be open for what things. And and that applies to all of our species that we hunt in Washington State. And so two years ago or so, uh, Spring Bear came up for uh, a vote around its tag allocations, the exact date of the season, and and the you know game management units that were going to be involved. And, and at that time, two years ago, there was a discussion that came out right there in the commission meeting that turned into a question less of, well, how many tags are we going to allocate? We're going to tweak these numbers and turned into a discussion of, you know, what are the ethics of spring bear hunting? Why, why would we allow a recreational spring bear hunt? And, and that is really almost the original kind of kernel to this whole thing was, um, what should have been a very standard procedural vote turned into this uh, really expansive discussion around um, why we hunt bears. And, and it's interesting because uh, a lot of the public comment that showed up to that original meeting uh, seemed to know what they wanted to talk about as far as ethics of, of hunting bears and hunting in the spring and spring bears, whereas hunters uh, didn't really show up at all for the public comment because this same action happens tens of times every single year and has happened for years on end where it's just a simple tag allocation discussion. Yeah. And that, and that was the moment that started this entire process. Whoa. So commissioners who are in your state, just like my state, and like a lot of states, appointed by governors and then usually confirmed by a, uh, you know, one of your houses in, in Montana and Washington. I think it's they're confirmed by the Senate. So, when you say that, based on the comments, word somebody got past the word that hey, we're going to talk about this in a, in the context of ethics and what's right and wrong, and not about quotas. You're saying some of the commission members maybe tilted their hand to these groups and hunters thought, well, this is just, you know, what's the quota range or what's the tag number that, like you said, happens dozens of times every year. So why would anybody think it's worth a big comment? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I don't want to, I, I never want to malign or accuse a commissioner especially of anything um that i i don't know that they would do and and i don't think our commissioners are out there normally operating with the worst intentions to subvert the system but there there did seem to be some cohesion between the public comments uh showed up that day to speak about the ethics of spring bear hunting Mm -hmm. and that at that time our commission had a, a membership composition that had some people who did not seem necessarily in favor of that hunting opportunity at the same time. Does yeah. that mean they were coordinated? I, I wouldn't make the assumption, but uh, 
comments about concerns on Spring Bear were falling on ears that wanted to hear that is probably the right way to put it. Yeah. Huh. Well, your commission has an interesting mandate. I think it's a pretty good mandate. Uh, uh, <laughs> actually, it's pretty uh, heavy on uh, what what the commission should do. The commission shall attempt to maximize the public recreational game fishing and hunting opportunities of all citizens, including juvenile, disabled, and senior citizens. Hmm. It's... So, it's so, a, so seems like it's a good sounding mandate. <laughs> it's it, it's a great it's a great sounding mandate. Uh, you know, and that's that's one piece of it. I think there's four or five, yeah. you know, two sentence sections to the whole thing, and and they talk about conserving wildlife populations, and so it's yep. frequently described as having a dual mandate um, between conservation and providing commercial and recreational opportunities. And, and yeah, it, it seems like a robust bear population would be a, a sound opportunity uh, for the public to engage with. Yeah. Well, I would bet, Dan and Chris, that you guys who have to deal with this and sort out the personalities and the agendas and the whatever, you're probably going to be a little more hands-off than I am. I'm probably just going to call you know, try to clear some of the bullshit out of the fog every once in a while. Uh, and uh, I'll let you guys continue, but I don't want you to be surprised if I say, you know what this sounds like? <laughs> so uh, I appreciate your diplomacy. Uh, but <laughs> it's, and it's necessary because, you know, you guys attend meetings and work with people and you, you got to do what um, what is the accepted protocols. But I'm, I think... Already from what I've heard here and what I've read prepping for this podcast, uh, when people are done hearing the whole series of events, it's going to leave them scratching their head saying, how did this happen in a great outdoor state like Washington? But um, anyhow, it's back to your background. It, it kind of started with that quota setting process for a spring bear hunt. And that's a spring bear hunt that's been around for what, 30 some years, something like that? something around there um that yeah it's around 30 years but it goes back a little bit further when it comes to more management hunts that were for timber recreate or for timber damage so it's it's hard to say like this is the exact day we started hunting or the exact year we started hunting spring bear in washington but it has been a long-standing opportunity in this state yeah so where did it go from there uh well the this is where that you know political story and that background stays really important is is we have uh, based on our commission structure we have nine people on our commission we are supposed to have nine people three at large three representing eastern Washington three representing western Washington now at that time we only had eight people appointed to the commission and. When that vote happened, it fell onto to move forward with the spring bear season with the tag allocations and the updated game management units. It fell to a, a vote for those eight, eight commissioners and it came down on a 4-4 split. And in doing that, it, it failed to approve a spring bear season for that year. So we did not have a spring bear season that year, but it also didn't 
answer any questions in the in the big picture of things. It just meant that they reached excellent example of gridlock and it just kind of died that year for 2021, but nobody really knew what that meant. In- and just to keep a timeline real quick, so that vote happened in November of 2021, which kind of pushed a big domino into effect for um, flagging this as a pretty critical, like, holy crap, you know, how did the hunting and fishing community or really just the hunting community, you know, let this one slip by and, you know, everybody just started perking up, like saying like this, did this actually just happen? Um, in between November of 2021 to February of 2022, um, a lot of things happened and were put in motion to, to, to get the public more involved, to get hunting organizations more involved and to get, um, um, to try and reverse or to, to, to have a recount on that vote. But uh, Dan, you can go take it from there if you want. So no, I, sorry, go ahead, Randy. Yeah. Uh, I, I just want to make sure because sometimes people confuse their agency, you know, the scientist biologist as this is their impress, you know, this was their decision. I want to make sure people understand that, a commission can have a distinctly different view of things than what the scientists, biologists, and and directors, you know, managers within a wildlife agency can have. So at this time, when this all happened in November 2021, my understanding was your department thought this was just fine, that they they recommended this hunt. Is that correct? That's 100% correct. And to even like put you know, numbers to it. Um, you know, director Suswind, uh, who's a you know director for the entire, um, Washington department of fish and wildlife. And then, um, Dr. Stephanie Simic, who at the time was the Washington department and fish and wildlife's carnivore, uh, section manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a leading biologist, uh, in, in studying bears, predators, um, uh, in the state of Washington and has had a long career in that as well. Um, but to kind of go, you know, well, let me back up. So both of these people, um, Dr. Simic and director Suswin, uh, testified, uh, not only at the hearing in, in November, uh, but in later hearings, as this kind of kept on getting brought up at, um, at commission meetings, um, publicly testified that this is a viable and sustainable hunt. And it's really backed up by what we have for science right now. Um, you know, if we look at a 10-year harvest rate uh, for spring and fall bear averages, we're looking at 8.2 and 9.5 as the extremes. So 8.2 at the lowest percentage and 9.5 uh, percentage of, of take uh, of the entire population. And there's an mm-hmm. estimate of 18 to 21,000 uh, adult black bears uh, statewide. Okay. So those percentages fell completely within objective, um, which the department sets a 9% to 11% harvest rate annually. Okay. Um, so those harvest rates, you know, on, on both ends of the spectrum fell either well below, uh, or stayed well below the high, uh, of those annual, or, or of those annual objectives. Okay. Um, so, yeah. I, I just wanted to make sure that people understood that and they're clear because I think where this story goes is sometimes science is not 
it's inconvenient or data and biology and the professionals who work on that every day sometimes what they provide is inconvenient to people who have a different agenda or opinion uh so i just wanted to to do that so go ahead dan continue with how these dominoes started kind of falling here yeah and uh chris can it's it's been a long and winding road so chris can <laughs> feel free to interrupt me if i'm missing any of the details i've got some gray hair and lost some hair over this whole thing over the last two years but uh Right around that time in November 21 that Chris was referring to was also when uh, we one commissioner opted to resign uh, who had who had seemed pretty opposed to a spring bear hunt. And uh, we had another commissioner step down at the end of their term. And we ended up finally at a commission full of nine people, um, which is something that everybody wanted. So we couldn't end up in this four, four tie vote. So things just fail anymore. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with that is, is that, you know, some of those commission appointments don't seem to have been ones that are advantageous for fulfilling the mandate for opportunity. And at times seem opposed to fulfilling even responsible conservation mandate and uh maybe the worst part of that is that you know according to the state laws and statutes uh groups of hunters and anglers are some of the people who should have been consulted on those commission appointments and mm -hmm. and we weren't in the room for that and so um moving into the next year into 2022 we ended up with a commission that felt pretty stacked against hunters and uh even though it sounds like spring bear kind of ended in 2021, obviously there was a second half of that story, which is the entire situation this last year of, of how we tried to get it back and where we are now in the situation. And I, I definitely want to highlight real quick, like, you know, Dan was saying that like, okay, BHA wasn't a part of those conversations. So we weren't, uh, you know, one of those stakeholders that were, you know, made aware of, of the appointments that were about to, to, to be put into those seats. Um, it was a blanket, um, like, uh, what are the words I'm looking for? This isn't a boo-hoo BHA wasn't involved or wasn't asked to get to, to, to be a stakeholder in this conversation. This was like an all out, no hunting group was asked to be involved in these, in these conversations. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what we were really finding more and more of when we were reach out, reaching out to our partners that we've worked with in the past or other groups that, you know, uh, have a little stake in the game or have a bigger stake in the game in the issue. Nobody was getting communicated. And that, that was from hunting groups to environmental groups to, uh, uh, even fishing groups weren't even getting asked to, 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 to be looked at or to be included in these conversations. So that leaves the question, who was asked to be part of these conversations then? Well, I think, uh, you know, if, if we were painting a, a picture and telling a story that Chris just really highlighted one of the key narrative points of, of what's going to go on throughout the rest of this conversation, which is, that's when a lot of groups in Washington started checking in with each other on the hunting side and saying, you know, were you involved? Did you know these names coming ahead of time? You know, there were conversations with tribes at that time who as co-managers, they were even shocked by some of the names that came out. 
Um, but yeah, the question of who was, uh, who was in the room for, for making those decisions and who gets appointed, we don't know exactly who was there. But we do know that some of the groups who had been organizing to try and get rid of spring bear hunting in Washington seemed very excited by who got appointed and seemed to possibly know some of those names before the rest of us did. In other words, boy, uh, because here's what we always hear, right? Well, we got to worry about the people in the middle. You know, there's 10% who hunt, 10% who are anti-hunter, there's 80% in the middle. So you're saying that the 10% who might be against hunting, if you want to use a tag of anti-hunter, point being, they had the ear of your governor when these appointments were being made. Uh, it, it sure seems that way without any, without any proof. So I can't sit here and accuse, but they were very happy with who came in and it seems like they have some personal relationships outside of commission meetings with some of those new commissioners. And, and Randy, you mentioned that those, you know, 10% kind of numbers, these same groups are people who are, um, really smart about their tactics and how they frame their arguments and, you know, if you talk about hunting in Washington represents 4% of the population, they're more than happy to come into commission meetings and say that that means that 90% or 96% of Washingtonians don't hunt or are opposed to hunting. Yeah. So they, they, they want to claim the, the they, microphone. They claim the middle. Say, yeah. They claim every, that they, every time. Okay. So you guys get some new commissioners that, now it's looking like a pretty stacked deck. So if you're nine people, you got three from the east side, which being familiar with Washington, you guys have asked to be West Idaho at times. Uh, so uh, there's probably a little bit of a difference of philosophies there. You got your mandate is absolutely three from the from east side, west side. The other three seems like they can float wherever and be at large. So what do you end up with after that process? Well, the one the one interesting thing too that might frame up later on in the conversation is the at larges can be from anywhere, and there can be the three, and then there's the three east and the three west, but there can't be more than one commissioner from any county. Right. And and the reason that becomes important is when you look at Eastern Washington, my home, which I love, but when I look at the density of people, you're really only talking about two or three counties and and that's where the majority of the eastern washington population is and so you only end up at a with a few possibilities to to get a, an appointment over here um without doing a lot of effort to try and dig people out who might not have as high of a profile mm -hmm. uh in the last round we the commissioners we added were uh, melanie roland and john lim cool and Tim Reagan uh, are the three most recent commissioners. Melanie Rowland uh, lives in central Washington, but east of the Cascades. Uh, Tim Reagan uh, somewhere from the coastal area, I think Anacortes. And John Limcool is from Wenatchee, which is smack dab in the middle of the state. Right. Um, so those are who we have uh, that were the most recent appointees. And, uh, you know, all three of them 
have at one time or another said at least one alarming thing if you're a, a at least if you're a hunter or an angler but i'd say pretty alarming if you're a conservationist who doesn't even hunt and fish yeah hmm so calendar's rolling forward now you got nine commissioners did you end up ever getting a spring bear hunt or any of your other hunts and your representation and voice further muted by by some of this yeah it stays it stays in kind of a weird back and forth period for a bit with um there's ongoing public notice and at this point you know backcountry hunters and anglers and so many other groups that we had been in communication with throughout the commissioner appointment process you know really activating their base and you know uh Things are coming out in the press about it, you know, in, in mainstream press that's talking about outdoor situations. So there's more and more energy kind of building up around this spring bear in, in a public sense. But, you know, at the commission level, the the battle lines are getting drawn a bit harder between some of those groups that seem really strongly and vocally opposed to spring bear, um, calling it trophy hunting and, uh, you know, shooting cows as soon as they're cut or shooting shooting sows with calves is you know with sorry with cubs is a you know a concern and that we're shooting right out of hibernation and it's unethical and you know that's getting kind of picked up in some in some press and they're they're pushing it and we're starting to align and talk about you know what it actually looks like and you know uh speaking in public comments uh, in commission meetings and you know trying to do our own defense of, of hunting as an activity and all the while, there's this ongoing commission process where there are petition, formal petitions being filed with the commission. Uh, one of those was successful that essentially said, you have to reconsider the vote because the vote was supposed to be about tag allocations. It wasn't supposed to be about the ethics of bear hunting. And one of those petitions was successful um, going through, meaning they would reconsider it. Then they reconsidered it and and decided that no, they wouldn't move forward with the season. Uh, and you know, all through the rest of this last year, it's been building up to a point where they need a spring bear policy because they're operating without a clear policy. And and what does that mean to have an actual policy? And mm-hmm. and if you couldn't tell, unfortunately, we've had to spend a lot of time on policy and politics, which is not the most exciting part, but those, those details and that nitty gritty has been exhausting to try and kind of keep on top of. And it also kind of shows how uh, for people who, who aren't interested in providing opportunity gives them a lot of um, grace to, to be really powerful. I think commissioners, you know, if there's something I could tell everybody, it's, I don't think they realize how powerful a commission is in policy setting and in what happens with our wildlife. Hmm. So uh, then all of a sudden, okay, we're not going to approve a quota that in this, in effect gets rid of spring bear. Now the next, I guess, reason stated is, well, we don't have an adequate spring bear policy. So we're not going to approve the season until such policy is brought forth and adopted. Is that, was that kind of the hurdle they put in front of you? 
Yeah. Not even. Go ahead. Sorry, Chris. I'm talking too much. Oh, you're good, man. You're doing a great job framing it up. So I'm, you're making my job easy and I'm just sitting back here and listening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, no, I think, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a couple things, you know, one of the biggest hurdles that they put in place, which was mind boggling to a lot of us, um, and a lot of their groups, uh, that kept on listening into these hearings, um, you know, Dan, Dan mentioned that that petition that was able to get pushed through. And this was like one of like six or eight petitions that were filed, um, that forced the commission to, to revote the biggest, uh, motif or, or the strongest motif that was running through that entire dialogue was the need for more science. That was the biggest hurdle. And then that kind of that, that ask for more science is now getting pushed into, into a new spring bear policy. Uh, and we can, we'll, we'll, I think we'll cover here in a little bit, you know, you know, this year they brought it up again in their, in their annual uh, review of spring bear and, and they voted against it this past November. Uh, but in the spring of, of this past year in 2022, um, you know, a lot of commissioners on the side of, of, of questioning the season kept on asking for more available science. And, and it, it, it felt like, uh, at least for us and in other groups, we were like banging our head against the wall. Um, because like you mentioned before, Randy, in the beginning of this conversation, we've had, you know, a handful of biologists from the, from the, uh, um, uh, from WDFW, as well as the director saying that this is a viable hunt, that the current available science, uh, shows that this is available hunt and that we need this hunt to not only, um, still work on historical needs for spring bear, which was what Dan had mentioned, you know, um, protecting timber harvest or timber damage, um, management of the herd, uh, and then predation, um, predation being one of the biggest things right now in the state too. And, uh, that goes to the, the blue, the blues, um, elk herd in Southeast Washington. You know, there was a recent study that had 125, I believe elk calves, uh, that were collared 77 of those were, um, killed, uh, by predators. Um, and the composition of predators was cougars and black bears. Um, 20% of those, uh, of those 77 elk calves, um, were killed by, were, were killed by black bears. And so, um, and that's towards a, a, a an elk herd population that's been steadily decreasing over the last decade. Um, and it actually might be longer, but I don't want to get my, uh, my facts too skewed, but, um, yeah. it definitely has been, been, uh, been decreasing significantly. Yeah. And just to kind of piggyback on that from Chris, you know, the other thing that needs to be said about the science is just in case anybody listening thinks that Washington doesn't understand as a state doesn't have wildlife scientists that know how to count bear numbers accurately. We're using our department is using the exact same methodology, the exact same techniques that are widely accepted and used in every other state. So it's not that, you know, our wildlife biologists are sitting out there, you know, guessing or throwing numbers at the board. They're using standardized methodology and and our numbers are robust in this state. And so these questions and these calls for more science uh, not only don't really add up because we're using the best scientific tools to get the best science, but it also, you know, at even a really fundamental level is they're asking them in this very kind of rhetorical or hypothetical way instead of 
using the tools that are at the commission's disposal to say, I have an explicit question. I have a form I can use to ask that question. They just mm-hmm. say, oh, but we just don't know how many we have and we need better science. And, and that's so it's stalling out this entire process for this dream of more science that doesn't exist in a, in a practical application whatsoever. And to Chris's point, while all these other factors are ha- happening around um, either black bears or commission wildlife decision making, um, like the blues, which are just kind of a perfect example that runs, unfortunately, right beside the rest of the spring bear conversation. Yeah. So it's the request is keep giving us, keep asking for science until it's science we agree with. That that seems to be it. Um, <laughs> I, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, then. But no, that's, that that that's really a, seems to be it. Uh, or that the science you have, even if you can't find the science that agrees with us uh, necessarily, because your science doesn't agree with us, it's not good enough. Seems right. to be the other way to put that. <clears throat> yep. Um, and, and we see that in so many issues, right? Where, well, let me go find some science from my people in it. It gets to the core of science is, you know, one of the core principles of science and in research is objectivity. That you, you approach it to come up with uh, solving a problem, not fulfilling an agenda and the science tells you what it tells you and go from there instead of reverse engineering it and saying i'm going to deny your science until i get the science that could answer my question or at least fulfill my objective here uh that's man that's very disheartening but i can't say that it's the first time it's ever happened so so that's that's a, a, go ahead, Chris. Oh, I was just going to say, like, that's, I think, you know, with this turning a blind eye uh, to what's available and to what you just said, Randy, you know, it, it's not the first time we're seeing this. We're seeing this happening in California and Colorado. Um, I believe in, is it Arizona or Nevada? Um, anyway, one of the southern states. Um, uh, but yeah, we're seeing this across across the country where, where um, certain groups and, and especially when, you know, commissioners that may have different views on what wildlife management looks like start to get on, uh, on these commissions, it opens up, um, a larger, or I guess a vulnerable conversation, um, to, to really, you know, pound in this, this idea that the science isn't available when everything points it and, and says that we have, a sustainable population. Yeah. So did you guys, are you at the point yet where you have a spring bear policy or is that still being worked on by your department? We, well, I wouldn't say it's being worked on by the department, but we do now have a spring bear policy uh, coming out of, I think it was November 18th. uh, That was decided on by the commission. And, you know, the little bit of background on that is, uh, they'd spent the last few months leading up to that saying, well, we need this policy. How are we going to get to a policy? What's the framework around this policy? And the Department of Fish and Wildlife actually uh, brought in a social scientist 
whose entire job is uh, his entire profession is around making hard wildlife decisions with a lot of different stakeholders who have different views. And when when social science interacts with wildlife management, they brought him in at one point, the department did and, and kind of offered him up to the commission and said, you know, it seems like you're really struggling to come up with a policy because of where you all stand on this. Why don't you lean into this person's toolkit? And, uh, you know, he, he seemed great. He, he talked about how, you know, it's, it's a hard process and it takes a lot of time. But if you're willing to put the time into this, we could, we could reach a policy. And, you know, one thing I should, should have said at the beginning, and I always try and say it is, if there's a sound process that leads to a policy decision I disagree with, I can always say, but the process led us there and it was a good process. So I have to respect it. Um, you know, is, in the same conversation where he was introducing himself to the commission and talking about, you know, what this process would look like, there are commissioners saying, well, we've already had enough public input. Uh, we've already spent enough time on this. Why would I do this if I'm not going to change my mind about anything? Um, can you, can you cut this time frame down to in half or can you cut this down to a couple hours in an afternoon? Um, you know, or I don't want to participate in a survey about my positions on this. Um, Whoa. And so, you know, bless him. He seems like a, a very patient person. I guess he would have to be for the work that he does. But, you know, he he tried to you know reach all those concessions with them, you know, and still come up with a plan or a process that would get them to a policy. And so on November 18th was the day they ended up at a policy. They gave him a couple hours and then they uh, crafted the policy in the room that day. They did not solicit for public input around the policy. They didn't engage in a SEPA review or any kind of an economic impact review or an impact ungulates, voted on the policy and it passed on those same lines that I think a lot of people watching the Wildlife Commission these days know, 5-4 vote by the five commissioners that seem to be voting together and the four that support opportunity voted, you know, against that policy. And that policy is that the commission does not approve of a recreational spring bear hunt. Hmm. Wow. So <laughs> the resources of an expert is out there, but they don't want to use him because the outcome might differ from what their slant or bias is or their, what they want for the desired outcome. So let's have a little meeting here and adopt a policy for something as important as a policy about managing one of the key species in Washington, black bears. This yeah. Is crazy. I, yeah. And, you know, I have to throw out, you know, just in case anybody doesn't think anything's crazy, I can throw out a couple key quotes from commissioners throughout this whole process. And that would be one commissioner who doesn't understand uh, why, what animals we hunt in the spring. We actually had a couple commissioners who didn't know we hunted any animals in the spring. Uh, another commissioner who inaccurately thinks that bears are the only thing we hunt in the spring. And we had another commissioner who said that unless you know the exact number of animals on the landscape down to the individual animals, you shouldn't be hunting them at all. Hmm. <laughs> 
wow, you guys are up against a steep grade here with with that turn, that pivot. That all of this kind of happened over the course of a year or two, where it, it went. It, the table got slanted that heavily against hunters and hunting in Washington. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's it's just the tip of the iceberg. I I think it might be easy for some hunters who who don't hunt spring bear. Maybe that's not something they really care about, or you mm-hmm. know, people who might not come from a state that has spring bear hunting, thinking, oh, it's just it's just one issue. But it's uh, it's not one issue when you hear commissioners talk like that. Uh, when you've got right. a commissioner say that you know, you shouldn't hunt any animal in its reproductive cycle, or you shouldn't, you know, pursue any wildlife in during its reproductive cycle. I, I would challenge any outdoorsman or outdoorswoman to think about what that would mean for to hear from somebody managing your wildlife in your state for any of your opportunities. Yeah, uh, that that's a backdoor way of saying, well, we shouldn't hunt elk because they have this gestation period of you know, September to May. Uh, so, no. I mean, there there goes the rut. There goes yeah. salmon. Salmon fishing in Washington would be under attack Ooh. just as much in that. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. that's in the middle of their run to return to spawn. So, um, um, those are really scary comments. And spring bear just is the the easiest single hmm. case point uh, in Washington State where it's bared out, but there's no indication that that's where it stops and where it ends. Yeah. Well, when you brought this up, here's the thing that concerns me is Montana, you know, everyone thinks that, well, something like this could never happen in Montana and things can happen at a commission level or they can happen at a, you know, judicial level. Uh, Montana is at times being criticized for we don't have a good enough grasp on this species or that species. Uh, and our state agency often comes forth and says, Hey, we need some, we need money to do a full, you know, full study on this and know where exactly where we're at, update what methods we're using for modeling and everything. And here's most often the comment from hunters and anglers. Oh, that's just a waste of my money. Well, (laughs) I would much rather my agency have the best possible data, be updating it, have the budgets and the people to update it regularly so that whether it's a commission effort like you guys are facing in Washington or a, a, a judicial effort, you know, somebody uses the judiciary to try accomplish the same thing. Our agencies can never have too good a data to defend and support and and justify their management actions and their their policies. So as you guys are talking about this, I'm like, okay, time for me to ring the bell here in Montana and hopefully listeners in other states saying, hey, where are we at on our bear policy? Where are we at on our, you know, insert species here policy? Because yeah. it sounds like those are kind of the the easy targets for them to pick off, whether they do it at a commission level or they did it some other means. And, uh, and Randy, I think that's even a better point to even, I know, I feel like sometimes it's like beating a dead horse that, you know, we keep on saying hunters and anglers fund for, for this um, uh, for this research, for these departments, you know, not only through Dingle Johnson and the Pittman-Robertson Pittman Act, 
Um, but even through license sales, I mean, yeah, we're 4% of the population here in the state of Washington, but that 4%, you know, we generate $97.4 million from 2019 to 2021, uh, to support, uh, WFW. Right. And so, okay. Great. Where, what's the 96%? What's the, what's the other 96% doing? Yeah. You know, these groups can come in and, and say that they can, they can grab the middle, but where, what, what are their, where, you know, they're not really putting their money where their mouth is. And we are as hunters and anglers. Yeah. yeah. And if I just want to piggyback on that from Chris, cause I do think it's something that, you know, uh, deserves to be spoken about in, in the hunting community, um, at least in Washington state is, uh, I think, I think hunters sometimes do themselves a disservice by saying, oh, well, we, you know, we pay our license tags and our excise fees and we're the primary funders of, of, you know, wildlife. And in Washington state, you know, the unfortunate truth is that's not quite accurate. We are 4% that hunts accounts for about 20% of the WDFW budget. Now that's, um, you know, so that's not obviously the majority but it's important to point out that if 4% is providing 20% of a department funding, um, that's probably not the, the avenue to be pushing down or disenfranchising. That's a pretty significant lift. It's just not all the lift. So, um, you know, I, I like focusing on those numbers because it's not that we're the sole funder. We fund about 20%, but 20% from 4% of the population is, is really impressive. Yeah. So does Washington, what is it, DF and W or something, whatever your acronym is, do you get general fund monies? We we do, and that's that's why I think that number is um, that twenty percent is interesting. Is we do get general fund money, but if we don't have hunters and anglers chipping in uh, significantly, um, hunting is just twenty percent. I, I don't know what the fishing side breakdown is. You know, if not, then we're going every biennium to fight for our share of the entire pool of money for wildlife. And unfortunately, in a fight like that, wildlife is going to lose in the financial breakdown in in our capital. Uh, They're not going to get all the money they need. So it's important that we keep that 20 percent, grow it as much as we can. But, you know, we can't make our wildlife 100 percent dependent on general funds. Right. Now, well. You know, each state is different in that, you know, how much they get, if uh, if any, from general fund monies. In other words, just the general revenue of the state. Uh, I'm trying to remember the number that Tony Wasley, who is the director of Nevada Division of Wildlife, put out there. He said that uh, of all the species that their agency is in charge of, uh, only... I think he said, I'm going to get my numbers slight. They're, they're pretty close. Only uh, 2% of the species they're in charge of managing are hunted. And only 5% of the state citizens are contributing towards that through their license fees, excise taxes, other things. Uh, and so 98% of the species is funded, maybe not in your case, not exclusively but heavily on the backs of the other five percent or in your case you said four percent of folks in washington hunt so it, 
to to try at a I don't care if it's at a commission level at a legislative level to try and carve away what relevance what voice that group has that is funding in your case 20 percent that's that is really i guess it, it's as ignorant as it is bold because wildlife is not just going to fund itself and uh you know, I could go into a whole tangent here about the North American model and and wildlife being held in trust and the responsibilities of trustee and blah blah blah. That, you know, if they view themselves as trustees of Washington's wildlife, uh, the denial of science, the lack of uh, reliance on experts—that's it's like violation of pretty much every trustee duty. But I. I, I could drag us way out in the weeds on that, guys. So I'm I'm going to try to keep it more on the path of where you guys are going here. Well, uh, if if I can join you in the weeds really quick, because I think that's a, <laughs> that that is a really important point, though, is you know when they when our commissioners do talk about themselves as as trustees of wildlife, uh, they also say it in the sense of. Yeah, but that means we need to listen to the 97% that don't hunt, which is where that pairs up really well with those sentiments from those anti-hunting groups in Washington. And mm-hmm. so this this real subversion of the public trust um, and and this undermining of, of hunters is, you know, these really critical stakeholders in the public trust. Right. And and that's that's part of really where we're at in our issues in Washington is um, it's not just that we're having less say in in commission meetings because there's other voices in the room, but that the commission seems to be listening quite a bit to those other voices that say hunters don't represent any part of the public trust. We're the arbiters of the public trust representing all the people who don't hunt and are therefore opposed to hunting. Yeah. So they're willing to carve away or throw away whatever funding comes with that, whatever volunteerism, whatever advocacy comes with all of that. Which, that's complete dereliction of their duty as a trustee to the beneficiaries, but also to the corpus of wildlife that they manage. But, uh, man, Dan and Chris, I don't have high blood pressure, but I'm I'm pacing around my office here. (laughs) I, I might need a blood pressure pill before you guys get me through this conversation. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, when you pay attention to it, it is a, uh, anxious and frustrating position we're in in Washington. Uh, I would say not almost less as a hunter and more as somebody who just really cares about sound wildlife policy decisions. I think, I think I left just being a hunter interested in spring bear behind well over a year ago. And now it's just a question of sound management and good governmental oversight uh and it'll yeah it'll uh tire you out pretty quickly yeah so what what have you guys i mean i i get the feeling and this is because last spring i think it was last february of 2022 i went to puyallup and i did uh presentations at the sports show there uh and then I did the Portland show later that month, and a lot of folks from Vancouver and you know Southwest Washington come to that Portland show. 
folks were really bending my ear hard about all of this stuff. And uh, I I know that you guys weren't the ones to, who were going to say, well, let's just take our beating and then let's take a beating again next week and next year. Uh, you guys, didn't you guys form uh, some coalition group to kind of start representing your interests and bringing people together that, you know, sometimes we argue about the dumbest little things amongst us, but then we see such bigger threats like you are facing in Washington. And it really shows the value of having these coalition type groups of hunters, anglers, people concerned about, you know, wildlife management. Is that, was that kind of the, the next step of where their story goes? I want to let it, Chris answer this, but I'm going to just really quick point out that this jumps back to um, earlier in our conversation where I said, you know, if you're following this as a narrative, this was a key point uh, was in that commission appointments. That's that's where this organization started happening. And, and Chris, take it away. Yeah, no, I think, you know, when we were talking about, you know, <clears throat> back in 2021, November of 2021, we call got got side blinded, and when I say all, I mean uh, the hunting organizations in the state. Uh, we were looking at each other, saying, "Hey, you know, d- did you have um, you know a say in 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 some of these appointments? Do you know who these people are?" And like I mentioned, um, you know, we had been reaching out to to everybody under the sun because when it comes to the commission appointments. Um, you know, the, the governor's office is mandated to, to, to take, um, opinion and to listen to stakeholders, um, that will regularly, you know, be involved in, in working with commission. And that means hunting, fishing, recreational groups, you know, anything that, that has to do with, with wildlife management, uh, even to co-managers. Um, so tribes in the state, um, and we are reaching out to basically everybody and you know basically this we we're getting all the same response no we don't know who these people are and no um we haven't had any conversations or weren't um talked to um before these people were uh appointed um and in the middle of all of this you know it was funny i got uh, i started with bha um right in december of 2021 and so this was one of my first big projects with the chapter and we made it our, our first initiative to reach out to the governor's office and the governor's office at the time was like, okay, yeah, you can start working on this you know, appointment process. These are the things that we need. And if you guys have anybody, please let us know within the next couple of months before, you know, January. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were literally, you know, getting, um, we had reached out to probably 15, 15 so ish groups, um, getting a letter together for, for an appointee, that we thought was would have, would have made a great commissioner. And on the very day, I, and I, I swear to you, Randy, on, within the hour of me sending that appointment um, to the governor's office, mm-hmm. the new appointments were released. Um, <laughs> and so it was, it was just oh, like, wow. what, you know, WTF, you know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> for lack of a better term, right? It was just like, what the heck? You know, it's yeah. like, okay, you guys just let us on. To, to think we actually may have actually had a voice in this entire process when you had left us out in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a- after we, you know, kept on knocking on the door, trying to let us in. And then you threw that in our face, you know, right when we were actually trying to, you know, go through the right avenues. Wow. Um, 
And so that was like our biggest wake up call, like saying, okay, there isn't a unified enough voice. And that was clear to everybody that had signed that document to get this one person through the door that we were unable to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, between, uh, inland Northwest congressional sportsmen, uh, and BHA, we said, all right, we need to st- really start saying, how can we get a stronger hunting and angling voice at the governor's office? And it's not like we haven't had relationships with the governor's office in the past or any of the other organizations hadn't had a relationship. We've all had existing relationships, working relationships with the governor's office and mm-hmm. that, that entire process or that those entire relationships were just cut out. And so wow. we decided then and there that we needed to, to really make uh, something happen. And that's where, uh, the Washington Sportsmen's Coalition was born, uh, and now we're meeting, you know, uh, on a monthly basis, um, sometimes a couple times a month between uh, the policy committee um, and a couple other committees um, in, within the uh, within the group to talk about these issues uh, and and ensure that we're at least not only vetting all of the uh, commission's pro- uh, policies. Um, but then also making sure that what happened with spring bear doesn't happen to any other opportunities in the state. Yeah. Wow. So these commissioners that were appointed, do they rotate on, if I remember right, two year terms <laughs> or, or four year terms or six year terms? Uh, six year terms, unfortunately. <laughs> so, we wish it was four, we wish it was two years, yeah. Randy. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And you know, a kind of a bit of like the that structure around the commission is uh six year terms and uh they they get to a pretty free range in policies. They're in policy setting. There's a bunch of um you know subcommittees underneath them that they're involved in. And and Chris had uh had mentioned that you know things besides Spring Bear that it doesn't happen again. I mentioned the beginning, our game management policy, which sets the big picture goals for the things that we hunt. That's up right now in the, in their policy setting. And so that's one of those things that's, that's really concerning for us, but we are um, stuck with some of those commissioners for another five years. And unfortunately this year we're watching uh, more than likely two of our very good commissioners. Um, One has already, resigned effective the end of this term and the other one we have a pretty strong indication that they they are not going to be reappointed so uh whatever we were dealt with last time uh we're coming up on the end of the year now when their terms expire for the the three that are outgoing and we're more than likely going to lose two good ones and we're trying really hard to engage with the governor's office and see if we can get some some good ones in but it's uh it's a challenging battle to get into that room and to have those conversations and, and, you know, move the needle a little bit more towards some opportunity and science supporting commissioners in the next appointment round. And I want to just point out too, Randy is like, you know, with those three seats that are potentially up in 2022, Mm -hmm. um, like Dan said, one of them is, is probably not going to be reappointed. And I'm not going to point fingers or, or, or I guess I won't um, name names, um, but enough research from anybody that's listening will will be able to dig this up pretty quick. You know, this one commissioner who we actually backed 
um, and sent a, a, a letter to the governor's office saying that we would love to see this individual be reappointed in, in their seat. Uh, as which a coalition. Is not, as, as a coalition. coalition. Yeah, as a coalition. Yeah. Um, you know, which is not unheard of, right? right. Um, commissioners are very easily uh, reappointed and able to, um, uh, or, or able to serve consecutive terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one, and, and this individual is probably one of the best examples of what a commissioner or, or should be. Uh, they came on to um, uh, the commission and you know, had some hunting and fishing background, um, you know, had a, had a very significant professional career in the medical field, Mm -hmm. um, but has continually looked at the best available science, listened to that best available science and voted in those directions. And more often than not, you know, it, it has, uh, they have, um, supported, um, over and over again, opportunity for hunters and anglers, um, when the science supports it in yeah. this state. And unfortunately, uh, the governor's office has chosen was looking, it's looking like that the governor's office is choosing not to reappoint that person. Um, wow. even though, uh, they have had sound management practices and, and, and sound reasonable, um, choices and voice, uh, on the commission their entire term. Wow. I just, uh, you know, the, the old saying to the victor goes the spoils. I mean, that, that was a a statement that came from war back in, you know, medieval times, but it sounds like in your world of Washington policy, politics, whatever you want to call it, one of the spoils that goes to the victor is I'm going to seek commissioners that agree with me, regardless of their qualifications. And I'm going to remove those who don't agree with me, regardless of their qualifications. And that's a a new form of to the victor goes the spoils and our wildlife is what's going to pay the price. And, and the part that's probably the most frustrating about all that is this same commissioner that Chris is referring to happens to be from the governor's own party and was in fact appointed by that governor. It just seems to be that she hasn't quite towed the line that the governor wanted maybe all the time. And that's enough for her to not be reappointed. And, you know, I I don't think Washington state's politics would be really surprising to anybody. And, and I hate to really get into the politics, but we're a, a, consistently blue state based on two to three counties in the state. This state is blue all the way through because of two to three counties um, that are really densely populated and our Congress and our Senate are pretty blue as well. And so it's really hard to see how you would ever get uh, anybody not kind of towing that line um, following in the governor's ideology into these positions based on the political structure in the state. Yeah. Wow. What do you guys have for a ballot initiative process in Washington? Do you have one? Uh, I don't think it's ever good to talk about the ballot initiative process in (laughs) Washington. Um, Just because the last time hunting and angling came up on that, it saw the end of 
uh, hunting bear. It, it was the end of uh, hound hunting in Washington. Okay. Well, that's so not a, um, that's based not on those, either. yeah, based on those same population demographics we have, uh, hunting is going to probably take a loss anytime yeah. it goes up to an initiative there. And it circumvents the idea of scientific management that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when it came to the hound hunting, we actually really took a strong management tool out of the toolbox in Washington state. And I think, you know, we're still feeling reverberations from that decision that happened in, oh, I'd say 1996. I think wow. it was. I, so. the, the, I think, Sorry, Go ahead, <laughs> sorry. Chris. Without keep on being in the weeds, I think it just you know just to kind of bring it back to, and I don't think it really matters. Uh, I, I think when well, whether whatever aisle side of the aisle you're on, I, the biggest the biggest problem that we're seeing is just the rhetoric that is being fed in some of these counties, um, and what organizations have a hand uh, have the strongest hand in some of these counties. And so I think that's, what's really driving a lot of what the public's seeing, um, a lot of what the public's hearing, uh, and, and a lot of the misinformation. Um, you know, one of the biggest misinformations that I, I, that I see from somebody that necessarily doesn't hunt, uh, but necessarily, you know, or what, but supports it, um, or supports hunting, um, but might not know a lot about, you know, black bear hunting yeah. is that they keep on pu- pushing this rhetoric of trophy hunting, that yeah. black bears are only for trophy hunting. And when it can, it, you know, it's, it's complete, it's the legitimately complete opposite. And Randy, right. you know, that firsthand, you're an avid bear hunter, yep. an avid black bear hunter, black bear meat is some of the best wild game meat that you can pure cure yourself. Right. And there is a mandate at the state that says you have to recover as much of the animal um, as as uh, as possible uh, in the state of Washington, and, and that goes to our waste laws, right? Yep. And so that in mis- that misinformation of somebody thinking that immediately that we're you know that hunters are just are just killing bears for fun or for sport is yep. is completely the opposite, and what destroys opportunities like this one um when there's certain rhetorics and you know i dare i say propaganda um within within a lot a lot of these you know densely populated areas yeah well they've done enough focus groups to understand that when you talk about hunting and you talk about it in the context of food and utilization there's huge support but they have found that one word that you can hang to it trophy that instantly it flips that support to almost a mirror of opposition. You know, to, to whatever degree there is support for, for, for utilization and, you know, subsistence or whatever term you want to put on hunting for food, there is an exact opposition to hunting when you try to say, trophy hunting they know that that's why they use it that's why they say the term and that's why among our own selves in the hunting space when people want to when we hang the term on each other in our own discussions we are just leading down that same path we we are it, it's so damaging and anyone who doubts that that's damaging just look at what you're talking about chris they use this rhetoric 
I call it, yeah, propaganda is probably a better term. They want to call everything trophy hunting because that they know that will gather the the support and the slant that they hope for. They're not going to talk about the utilization of it and what fine table fare it is. And uh. yeah, and then, I, uh, and I, oh, so. I was just going to say, if I can, yeah, a perfect example in Washington is is one of the groups that came out really strongly against Spring Bear, commissioned a poll, hired a third party, independent party to do it. And I remember looking through the questions and one of the questions was, how do you or do you approve of hunting bears in the spring when sows are emerging from hibernation with their cubs and still drowsy or something like that? And it's like, yeah. You know what answer you wanted to get out of that by how you right. frame that question. And then the answers to that and that question gets repeated by commissioners in commission meetings. And it's, I, I don't, you know, I'm always trying to find the angles and it's so hard to find a way to address right. something like that because, I mean, you just really don't have a leg to stand on because it's been ripped out by people. You expect to be a little more nuanced than that. Yeah. And even we we were even able to talk with some of the commissioners about like, okay, you know, Oregon adopted a policy where spring bear, like you, you aren't allowed to shoot sows that Correct. have uh, cubs with them that are a year, a year old or younger, mm-hmm. which totally makes sense. Right. Yep. From a management standpoint, you want to see these cubs grow uh, and get bigger and, you know, be added into a, this, a sustainable population and no ethical hunter that I know of shoot, shoot sows with cubs, even if it's, even if it's allowed. And so we were, mm-hmm. um, we were, we went to the commission saying, Hey, let's, let's redefine this policy so that we can actually please people on both sides of the aisle, because we also want to see the same things. We, we want to see these populations push forward for next generation. We want to see these opportunities held up for new hunters. Um, and, and so we went to the commission. We're like, hey, let's, let's look at writing in you know, some, or adopting some of the same uh, objectives that Oregon has or other states have. Mm-hmm. And they just didn't want to hear it. Um, yeah. And so it's just, it just kept on we just kept on getting, you know, sidelines, uh, turning a blind eye, whatever you want to call it to, to any type of solution that we were trying to reach, um, to, to appease both sides of the aisle. Yeah. So we've painted a pretty dark and gloomy picture here. And I hope that if you are listening to this, you don't think that you are immune from this in your state, whether it's through a commission process, through a legislative process, through the judicial process. This is the kind of stuff that is happening. And we in the hunting community have a tendency to just not pay attention until it's too late. So in spite of all this, you know, darkness, this frustration, the, the, just what you, this history, the short history you've talked about here, you got any paths forward that you're learning from from being in in these skirmishes? Any any lights that are shining a little brighter than this darkness that we've just cast upon the the state of Washington? You, you know, before I talk about the lightness, I I do uh, I do want to talk about that darkness, unfortunately, and and reiterate what you just said. You know, what's happening in Washington State is 
absolutely uh, should be on the front line of every hunter who is not in Washington state. Um, the anti-hunting groups in Washington that have been behind this push, uh, there are groups just like it in every state. And mm-hmm. behind the ideology, behind the issue of spring bear is the ideology of reforming the Washington State Commission away from the North American model of conservation. And that idea of moving away from the North American model of conservation definitely has national support and national organizations behind it. And then they have state actors that are doing it at a state-by-state level. So no matter how insulated any state or anybody out there thinks they are in their state might be, the truth is, this is easily replicatable, and there are tool sets and organizations at a national level looking at how to do this. And for us, Spring Bear was the easy starting point. Um, so that's that's unfortunately more of the darkness. But on the upside <laughs> is, you know, um, Washington State hunters uh, and even Washington State anglers are paying attention. We're we're more aware than we've ever been before. Um, We've we've learned a lot, I would say, as organizations going through this. I, if anybody had asked me three years ago if I could, I couldn't have named every commissioner name. I now I can name who they are, when their terms up, uh, what county they represent, uh, what committees they sit on. You know that knowledge is power. That information is is so important. Um, you know, working on developing at organizational levels, our skill set to engage in commission. I, mm-hmm. I, it might come across here. I try to be really diplomatic um, because I do speak for the chapter a lot of times, but I've spent a lot of time in commission meetings and I've mm-hmm. stood there after commission meeting ended and, and waited for hours for an opportunity to shake a commissioner's hand just so they could put a face to the name. Um, yeah. And that, that relationship building is, so important, whether that's within our community or if that's, you know, with commissioners, even ones you disagree with. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the the other light lightness side of this is there's um, there's a lot of inside baseball that happens on this. And, and you've got to be you've got to be in the room for that to happen. And, and so I think that a lot of um, hunters might think that nobody's standing up for them in Washington or nothing's happening. But, um, you know, using that iceberg analogy, you see 20% exposed out of the water and the other 80% is underneath. And there are conversations that happen underneath that. There's that relationship building that we're trying to do in the governor's office. There's trying to build bridges with commissioners, trying to reach out to even non hunting or fishing groups that might share some of our values. Um, I yeah. think that's that's really the upside is is what we've learned. It doesn't mean that we're getting back spring bear tomorrow or that we're we're winning on every front, but it means that we're expanding our coalition um both deep and wide. That it's not just hunters top to bottom or anglers, but it's also looking for, you know, rational conservation groups that might not be for hunters, but understand the value they bring and, and building those kind of relationships is is so important and, and it's been the upside to this because we don't walk in the room alone anymore. Hmm. And I think the biggest thing for anybody that's listening that's not a part or doesn't live in Washington is, you know, your states can also be replicating that, right? Though yeah. the anti-hunting groups are, are, are replicating, might be replicating what's happened in Washington. 
everybody else that's that supports hunting that supports fishing that supports the north american model conservation can do exactly what we're trying and actively doing here in this state and we're seeing that replicated for in uh, across a, a, a plenty of states right now california has an incredible coalition oregon has a very established growing co- coalition of, of hunting and england groups colorado um and a handful of others that i don't remember off the top of my head but it's when we get a stronger, more collective voice, um, it's when we're heard the best and when we actually have a fighting chance and when we actually have uh, stronger relationships with our, our policymakers. Um, and then I'll do this shameless plug of it's even more important to support organizations that you feel are, are, um, are, you know, fighting your fight, uh, or supporting the causes that you are passionate about. Um, and that could be BHA, like the organization that, that myself and Dan are a part of, or it can be some, uh, you know, another group, but to be able to, you know, collate and, and bring together everybody under one tent is more powerful than you or anybody else thinks until you see it in action. And Dan and I are seeing it in action right now. And it is extremely uplifting. Um, and I think we all have a lot more energy going into 2023, uh, knowing that we have, uh, this stronger coalition behind us. Well, I'm glad you guys are doing it. I, you know, I hate to have the cause of wild places and wild things, not have the perspective and the voice of hunters and anglers that just, you know, it's so foreign to even think about that, especially here I am, I'm standing in a state in Montana where the majority of our citizens buy either a hunting or fishing license. And so it's so hard to just, you know, 600 miles east of you to envision something like this. But I get to travel enough. I spend enough time in policy. I spend enough time in Helena, our capital, and in other state capitals to know that if you fall asleep, it's pretty it's a whole lot easier to lose ground than it is to regain your ground and uh i hate for you guys to be that cautionary tale you know it's a it's a sad story to hear but i appreciate you guys doing what you're doing and not just walking away and saying well that's how she goes and you know folding the tent and i i really appreciate that you guys are willing to share this story and talk about one how quickly it can happen the mechanisms it can happen and the fact that we as hunters and anglers need to quit all this little bickering and dickering that is such a a negative use of our energy when we have so much in common we probably agree on you know 95 percent of the common things and if that energy was used in the way that you guys are using it with your uh, Washington Sports Coalition, uh, every state, every, every place where there are listeners hearing this story would be better off because of it. And I know that sounds like, you know, civics or it sounds like warm and fuzzy, but you guys are living it as the reality. But that That's really your salvation going forward is this coalition thanks um 
Sorry. You know, one thing I, I, if I could add in kind of towards, towards, I know we're getting towards the end here is just how much I've learned in the last two years of, uh, you know, conservation isn't easy and it's easy to take a lot of it for granted. And I know plenty of people say things like that, but having been through this experience here, it, um, Sometimes it's as easy as a, a button click on your computer to send a form email. But, you know, what we've had to do here in Washington for the last two years and what it's going to be trying to, you know, climb our way back in some capacity takes a lot more than um, just clicking a button. If that's all you can do, do it. But be in the room where those decisions happen. Um, be a stakeholder, not not just a, a you know, a licensed buyer. That's that's how you start by being proactive. Um, and it's so important. It's so much more than just uh, sending a form letter. Sometimes it's, it's picking up the phone, it's driving to a commission meeting. It's, it's being involved because at the level that the threats are happening in Washington, it's, it's definitely not enough to just sit back and think somebody else is going to be in the fight or to do the bare minimum. If you can do more. Yeah. Well, you stole one of my lines, Dan. I always say there's three common traits to conservation. It's never easy. You already took that one. I tell people if it was easy, they'd call it golf. And then all the golfers email me. Uh, it's, it, it's always uncomfortable because no matter what position you take on behalf of wild things, someone is going to be upset with you. It might be a family member, it might be a neighbor, a coworker, who knows what, classmate. But when you advocate for wild things and, you know, our model of how we do this, someone is going to try to make it uncomfortable for you. And the last one, it's always inconvenient. We never get to put on our calendar, well, four months from now, there's going to be a threat. And the, the you know, converse of that is, we don't get to put on our calendar when there might be an opportunity if we happen to show up. You know, it, all of the great conservation efforts in our country weren't something that somebody got to plan out two years in advance. So it isn't easy. It is uncomfortable and it is inconvenient. But if you want to have it for your own self and for those who will come after those are realities we have to accept and we have to put our shoulder to the wheel and push the wagon up the hill. And I, I, I don't know how else to say it. You guys are examples of, you know, think of, think of all the people you guys are working with in that coalition. If you guys all just said, ah, I'm too busy today. Or, you know, this is, this, this is just too much work or, Oh, someone's going to be upset at me. You wouldn't have that coalition. You wouldn't be, pushing back on this you wouldn't be starting to turn the the corner here and and providing an example of how you can organize in other states you guys haven't done that and that's that's to your credit and that that is how we make progress in this thing we call conservation if you want to call it hunting or fishing or whatever you know with, without that we aren't going to be around for too long uh, I know that, that sounds kind of gloomy, but the reason I, I wanted to have you guys on is one, to tell the story, but two, to show that you're not just going to sit down and take it. 
you you have people that you're working with you're forming coalitions you're finding ways to make progress and uh hopefully people will help you out wherever they can and uh i i know wherever i could you know whether it's this podcast or whatever uh count me in I, uh, it's, it's, it's just so hard to envision Washington as this place. Cause when I think of Washington, I think about waterfowl hunting, some world-class waterfowl hunting. I think about world-class fishing. I do think about bear hunting too. I think about whitetail hunting up in Northeast Washington. I, I mean, there's so many things about your outdoor world in Washington. It's just so hard to imagine what has happened there but man you got my attention hearing the story about it well randy hopefully we can uh come back to you in six months and give you a progress update and <laughs> and keep on we'll we'll be we'll we'll make a promise that we're going to keep on working forward and pushing forward for with this with this coalition and our group on on these issues so that you know, people can still think of Washington as, as a, as a state full of opportunity. Um, cause we still do, and we still, we still have a lot of hope. Um, and I guess fire, uh, to ensure that those opportunities, uh, stick around for, for quite, quite a while. Yeah. Well, is your yeah. legislature in session year round? Uh, no, they, they just went back into session or they're going back in, in a couple of weeks. Uh, this would be a long session, I think. So it's about three months long this time, maybe four. Okay. Um, so not year round and, you know, just kind of piggyback on what you and Chris Bull said about Washington state. You know, I, I don't care what political party anybody's from in Washington state, we love or any other values. One of the primary values in this state is that we love our outdoors here. Um, doesn't mean everybody's a hunter. Doesn't mean everybody's a skier, but we know how fortunate we are in this state for the beautiful outdoors that we have. Um, and, and it's protected and supported at so many different levels of government. And it's just a question of, how can we get people to understand that that hunters love wildlife just as much, if not more than, than almost anybody else out here. And, and that's what we're out here standing up and, and fighting for is, isn't just opportunity, but is, you know, responsible management that makes sure that everybody gets to get out there and enjoy this, this awesome state that we live in. Well, I appreciate you guys doing that. I appreciate you coming on here and sharing your, your stories about it. And, Chris, I, I will take you up on that offer that when you have a status update and I don't care if it's six months or two years, when you have some victories or some progress that you want to talk about, let's make sure and talk about that also because, you know, uh, doom and gloom doesn't sell that well. What sells is wins and, and spirit and fight and, and some progress. So uh, I'm going to hold you to that, Chris. Dan, I'm going to hold you to the same thing next time I see you somewhere. Uh, you know, we've got the spirit and fight. We just need a couple wins now. <laughs> uh, I, I, I know you guys, and I know how hard you work, and I know some of the people who are involved with you. Uh my money's on you that you guys are going to get some of those wins. So uh, keep up the great work and thanks for sharing these stories and these lessons for me and, and for the audience. And uh, when I get out there for some of the trade shows, uh, 
in February and March. I, I hope we can sit down and talk some of this stuff in person. I'll, I'll sure I'll be seeing you, Randy. Um, no, I really, really appreciate you have having us on today and, um, I'm looking forward to that next call. So we'll make something happen. All right. Yeah. Randy, thank you so much. You're very welcome, Dan, Chris. Thanks for all your work. And, uh, folks, uh, I think they both made a compelling reason why you should belong to an organization that's in the fight. Uh, in their case, they're both very involved with backcountry hunters and anglers. And like Chris said, whatever group it is, make sure it's a group that's in the fight and uh, be there and support the people who are doing the heavy lifting and we'll all be better off so well gentlemen thanks so much i hope you have a merry christmas and uh we'll be in touch all right Sounds thanks good. randy merry christmas merry christmas randy thank you when the sun came-